What was that about? How'd that go? Was that, did you find it easier to follow along or harder? I found it hard. I couldn't even remember what I was supposed to say. I was just trying not to fall over. Why did we do that? What was the point of that? Was that just to do something weird and silly and different? What was that about? That was designed to communicate something that you and I already know. We know this intuitively, and yet there's times when I think it's worth pointing out is that your body impacts the rest of your life. Your body impacts your spiritual life, your body impacts your emotional life, your mental life, right? Just even the fact that it's harder to concentrate when you're just trying to balance, you, you can't quite do two things at once very well. Though so some of you, you know, Dave, you looked pretty stable down, down there. You, you looked really steady, but, but most of you are wobbling around a little bit. And our bodies impact our life. You know this from all of your just regular, you know, life experience. We, my family, uh, we're wrapping up, I hope, what has been about three straight weeks of someone in our house being sick. It just feels like February has not even happened. Like we didn't leave the house for February is how it felt. And uh, it's been just really, really difficult. It's been tiring on my wife, tiring on all our kids and on me. And I think we've turned the corner. But, but you know, if you've, any of you been in that kind of world for the last, I mean, it is brutal. And, and your physical body impacts the rest of your life. Um, some of you know this because you've had, at different times, struggle sleeping, right? If you go through an extended period of time where you just don't get very much sleep, you know how hard that is, right? Some people call that kind of thing motherhood, <laughs> right? It's just, it's just, I mean, if you can't sleep, you just don't feel right. You just can't process things as well. Your mind's not as sharp. Your, your emotions tend to deaden after a while, and, and you're just not yourself, right? Your body impacts the rest of your life. Some of you know this and you experience it based on places that you really work better in your particular job. Maybe there are certain environments that you really love, certain coffee shops you like to go to or certain places at work or certain, uh, maybe some of you go, I don't even like being at the office, but when I'm in an airplane, there's something about being in the airplane. I just get my best work done on the airplane. Right? There's certain rooms you can go to. There's certain smells you can smell. There's certain places and environments that energize you and other ones that drain you. Right? This is something we're thinking about as we're planning the early stages of what we're going to build next door to go, okay, how can the, the physical environment is going to say something and it's going to draw out certain emotions and feelings and, and thoughts and, and what are those and how do we be mindful of those? Our bodies impact all of our life especially our emotional and spiritual life. And this is something God knows. And those of you who are Christians and are familiar with the Bible, you know that the Bible talks about it like this, right? In, in, the, in the command in Deuteronomy 6, which the Jews were to repeat multiple times a day, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, or I'm sorry, all your heart, your soul, and your strength. And other times it says heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Love the, love the Lord with your whole body, right? Your strength is your physical body. God is a God who has made us as whole creatures, not just body and soul and all these things separated out, but we're, we're, one, we're one thing, and we're to love God with all of it. Now, that idea that God has made us as whole creatures and that the physical creation bodily experience is a good thing, that has been under attack for thousands of years. Thousands of years. And so about 400 years before Jesus, there was a philosopher, Plato. And Plato really articulated uh, what's kind of become known as Greek thought. Uh, um, 
Plotinus was a guy who followed him hundreds of years later and really reinforced it, uh, created this thing called Neoplatonism, but it's just basically Greek and what has really become Western thought, and it's kind of dualistic sort of thought. So let me give you just sort of a summary of Greek uh, thought. This, none of this is really all that new or surprising to a lot of you. You just go, yeah, I've, I've heard this kind of thing before. But, but here's a summary of Greek thought. In Greek thought, there's a basic division between a good spiritual world and an evil material world, right? So this material world, bad. Spiritual world, good, right? And that dualism is a big feature in, in Greek thought. In Greek thought, bodily life in this material world is inferior to spiritual life. What really matters is the spiritual experiences and the spiritual thoughts and the spiritual dimensions and planes that you can kind of ascend to. Your physical life, eh, that doesn't matter very much. And in Greek thought, salvation is mostly about an otherworldly escape from this world. This world's bad. Your body's bad. So salvation is getting out of this world, getting out of this body, and going off some otherworldly place. Okay, that is Greek thought. That is platonic dualism, to use a more fancy way to say it. That, but, but that Greek thought is absolutely not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says something completely different. Here's what the Bible says. The biblical worldview, the biblical thinking says, uh, all things, visible and invisible, are created good by God and have been distorted by sin. So the Bible says, yes, there are things that are visible, And there are things that are invisible, but all of it was created by God. It was all created good, and it was all distorted by sin. The Bible also says, not that bodily life is bad and spiritual life is good, but that we are whole persons. All of life is integrated. All of life gives opportunity to honor God. Salvation in the biblical worldview isn't about how do we just hit the eject button and get out of this place into some otherworldly thing. Salvation is about the redemption and renewal of God's creation. The Bible ends with God making all things new, recreating the world. Not just people off somewhere in heaven, but on this physical earth, in real physical resurrected bodies, living out the new creation. Do you see how different that is? It's a very different way of thinking. And that Greek thought is the thought that the dominant culture had during the time of Christ and during the time of the early church. This is why, uh, just for example, if you've ever uh, read the Apostles' Creed, it's one of the earliest creeds of the Christian church, you'll notice when you read that, that it begins saying, uh, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. And it says, I believe in Jesus Christ. And then there's this really long paragraph, and it says... I believe in the Holy Spirit, and it doesn't really say much about that. And you go, wait, wait, wait. I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Spirit. But God the Son gets this giant paragraph, and everything in it is born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, buried, dead, raised, ascended, right? It's all these physical terms. Why? Why in the creed did Jesus get so much attention? Is it because he's the, like, varsity member of the Trinity? No, 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 no. It's because at the time that creed was formed, there was a Greek worldview that was saying the body's bad. So there's no way that that Jesus, who's divine, could really live out a physical life. And so the early church says, no, 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 it's totally physical. It's totally a body. It's God and a bod. It is Jesus Christ in the flesh, just absolutely contradicting Greek thought. But still, that Greek thought has become Western thought, 
And it's become really the air that you and I breathe. And so there's a ways that the Christian church has actually adopted this Greek thinking more than biblical thinking in ways that I don't think are very helpful. Here's a few examples of that, just for example. If you've ever thought, you know, pastoral work, missionary work, church planning work, missions, that's good. God likes that stuff. That's spiritual. But secular work, that's bad. Or I, I can't really honor God there. You know, if I really wanted to honor God, I'd be a pastor. If I really wanted to honor God, I'd be a missionary. That, that sacred, secular divide is Greek dualism. Right, when we think, oh, there's Christian movies, and there's Christian music, and there's Christian t-shirts, and there's Christian cars, and there's Christian bowling balls. I mean, I, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know how any of these things could be Christian, right? But, but we adopt this sort of sacred, secular thing. It's, it's a form of Greek dualism that's infected the church. This is a, another way that it's very common, is a lot of Christians talk about their relationship with God and their hope for the future as if their hope is going to heaven, do you see how, how much that sounds like Greek dualism? It's an otherworldly thing. We've got to escape this bad, crea- this bad world, and we've got to go to heaven. The, the point of the Christian life isn't to go to heaven. The point of the Christian life is to live out the resurrection life here and now until God makes all things new. And so we're not just kind of holding on for dear life. You know, the world can go to hell. I just want to hit the eject button and go to heaven. That is a Greek, dualistic, non-biblical way of thinking. Another way it comes up, this is the last one I'll mention, we could talk about more, but another way it comes up is with people who are really well-intentioned, trying to evangelize and share the faith, will over-prioritize saving souls and neglect caring for people's physical bodies, right? So people will say, you know what, people are going to hell. So who cares about people having shoes and having food and having clean water? We got to save their souls. Now, I appreciate what they're saying. What they're saying is everybody spends eternity somewhere. Eternity's a long time. Souls matter. That's true. But bodies matter too. Which is why our approach to missions is to say we want to do missions that cares about the whole person, not just saving someone's soul. Because just soul saving, that's Greek thinking, filtered itself into the church. So here's a question that maybe you're asking based on seeing this slide here, based on knowing we were going to talk about baptism today. What in the world does any of this have to do with baptism? Like, okay, Greek thinking, dualism, blah, blah, blah. What in the world does this have to do with baptism. Well, here it is. Baptism is a physical thing, isn't it? Baptism is a physical thing that sometimes Christians who have adopted more of a Greek mindset can say, baptism doesn't really matter. What really matters is what you feel in your heart. What really matters is what you believe in your head. What really matters is the faith that you have. You know, you don't need the symbol. You don't need the action. You don't need to do the ritual. Sometimes it's maybe an overreaction to a Catholic or Lutheran or other religious experience that seemed way heavy on symbolism and heavy on ritual. But, but baptism is a biblical thing that's a physical, physical picture. And because we are physical creatures, all of us made in the image of God, when we become Christians and we trust the Lord, we love him with all our heart and our soul and our strength, it makes sense that one of the ways we would commemorate that is through a physical act. 
like baptism. And then we continue to commemorate that faith and that relationship we have with a physical thing like communion, right? We take communion here almost every week. The only weeks we don't is when we're doing baptism. And the reason we do that is because it's a tangible, physical thing, right? You taste the cracker and you got to chew it up. And sometimes there's a little salt and you kind of go, oh, it's stuck in my teeth. And, and then you drink the juice and it's sweet. Or if you come from a tradition where there's wine, you, you taste the bite of the wine. And, and those physical things are supposed to tell you things that are important. So that's what this has to do with it. And baptism is actually a tremendous, tremendous gift of God. Here's kind of the big idea for today is that baptism is a beautiful picture of a bold proclamation of the gospel. Baptism preaches the gospel. Communion preaches the gospel. The the physical part of it, the actual event of baptism is preaching something, it's saying something, it's communicating something that is bold and that is beautiful about what happens when we experience the saving power of the gospel. When God gets involved in our life, when the good news invades our hearts and changes us, something amazing happens. And that's what baptism pictures. It's a beautiful picture and a bold proclamation of the gospel. So here's what we're going to do for the rest of our time here this morning is there are at least five significant meanings of baptism. As you look at the scriptures, and we're going to kind of, rather than just focusing on one passage today like we often do, we're going to look at a number of different passages because a number of different passages throughout the Bible talk about these five different meanings, five different areas of significance that, the, that baptism represents. This beautiful picture of a bold proclamation of the gospel. So get this, each of these five things doesn't happen because of baptism. Okay, each of these things happen because someone trusts in Jesus. But baptism proclaims these things in, I think, really beautiful ways, okay? Now, the first couple are a little longer. We'll spend a little more time on those, and then we'll, we'll go a little quicker through the last three. But here's the first one. Here's the first thing that baptism uh, pictures or signifies is new birth and life. New birth and life. Now, long before Jesus came... The Jews were hoping for and anticipating that God would do something fresh, right? We just, we just read the book of Judges. How many of you were super encouraged by the end of the book of Judges, right? No one, right? It was dark. It was like, man, if God doesn't do something, we're in big trouble, right? And so the prophet Ezekiel comes along and says, God's going to do something. I got something big that God's going to do. And in chapter 36 of the book of Ezekiel, there's this new covenant promise. It's this idea that here's what God's going to do in this next phase of history. When he breaks in in an even bigger and bolder way, here's what the people of God can look forward to. Okay? So Ezekiel 36 describes this this, uh, new covenant, this new promise that God's making to his people. Here's what he says. He says, and look, look at all the imagery of this. It's beautiful. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Remember all the idols in the book of Judges? How bad that was? God says, I'll cleanse you from that. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, something that beats and it's alive. Verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes 
and be careful to obey my rules. Here's the hope that you can look forward to, people of God, who can't make it on your own, who keeps struggling. Here's your hope. God says, I'm going to clean you. The image is water. And I'm going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to give you a new life, a new heart. Right? This, is the, this is the new covenant promise that the people of God are waiting for. And so then you get to John chapter 3. And Jesus is having this interaction with Nicodemus, who's one of the religious teachers, who should know Ezekiel 36 really well. And Jesus says to him, he says, listen, uh, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You're not going to enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And uh, Nicodemus says, well, gosh, I don't think that makes any sense. Like, I've been born once. How can you be born twice? I don't think me or my mom are going to be interested in revisiting that. Like, what do you, what, Jesus, what are you talking about? And here's how Jesus answers. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And later, he actually kind of teases Nicodemus. He goes, aren't you Israel's teacher? Like, you, should, you remember Ezekiel 36, right? And that's what Jesus is referring to. He's saying, remember how God promised to sprinkle clean water to clean you and your heart? Remember how God promised to give you his Spirit? Well, unless you're born of water and born of the Spirit, you're not going into the kingdom of God. Now get this, Jesus here isn't saying unless you're baptized, you're not going to the kingdom of God. He's saying if the, if the spiritual part of your heart is not cleansed by God, you're not going to enter the kingdom of God. If you don't receive the Spirit, you're not going to enter the kingdom of God. But what would be an amazing way to picture that? What would be an amazing way to represent that? A, 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 something that could proclaim to the church, this is what's happening, new birth, new life, baptism. And, and just so you know, if you've never been uh, at a church where they did baptism, or maybe you don't know how we do it here, uh, we typically um, get a horse trough, and we put it right over there. This is kind of like Queen Creek, right? So we got to have a horse trough. I mean, it just makes sense. Actually, this is great. My, uh, you guys gave to Heart Cry Gathering. Um, they do a cowboy church thing on Sunday nights. And when people get baptized there, they let them, they do a horse trough in the back of a pickup and they get to pick Ford or Chevy or Dodge for which truck they want to get baptized in. I think that's kind of cool. So we don't go that far, but we've got a horse trough and we have water in there and someone gets in and they sit there and we dunk them under the water and, and going down in the water represents that just like Jesus went down into the grave, they're dying to their old life. I like to hold them under there a little bit just to <laughs> make them appreciate that. And then, and then they come back out. When they come back out, it's like they're being born again to new life. It's like Jesus coming out of the grave. There's new life, right? That's the picture of baptism. So it's, it's picturing this cleansing with water and rising to this new life of God with the Spirit. So... Ezekiel talks about this new covenant. Jesus talks about this new covenant. And then Paul, the apostle, picks up on this theme in the book of Titus. That's what we're going to study actually after Easter. We'll do a, a book study of, of Titus. We'll go verse by verse through it. And in that book, here's what the apostle Paul says. He describes our life apart from Christ. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, don't you love when the scripture says but? That's awesome. It always means something good's coming. But 
When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, there's your water imagery, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, there's your spirit imagery, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, here is what's amazing, is that, that word, I, I don't typically pull out Greek stuff because I don't know it very well, I gotta look all that stuff up, but that word regeneration, if you go, what does that mean? It's this Greek word, palingenesia, which means, do you see a word in there? Genesis. Here's what it means. It literally means Genesis again. Genesis again. By the washing of Genesis again, creation again, new creation. What a beautiful picture. Think about this, right? In Genesis, God creates everything, and it is good. And they are walking with him in the cool of the day. And Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed. And their relationship with the creation is right. And everything is at peace. There's not all the stress. There's not all the turmoil. There's not all the everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. It's Genesis again. That's what happens when you trust in Christ. New birth, new life, Genesis again in your heart and in your life, and eventually in the world as God renews all things. And that is what's symbolized in baptism. Beautiful, beautiful. This is why, by the way, just throughout this sermon, for those of you who have been baptized, this is not mostly like trying to get everyone baptized. I assume a lot of you have been baptized. Part of what I want to do for those of you who have been baptized as Christians is, is to say, be encouraged by this. Look at all that this represents. Think about these things. They're really beautiful. One just last way to illustrate this is I was with Tim Campbell, who leads our uh, Outward Focus ministry. We were in Turkey a year or so ago, and uh, we came in Ephesus to this church that's built around where John the Apostle is buried. So that's his tomb there, and this church is built around it. Uh, John, who wrote the Gospel of John and wrote the book of Revelation, uh, later in his life ended up in Ephesus, was a bishop there. And there's this church there that was built a few centuries later. And in this church, there's a baptismal. And we took a picture of the baptismal with some of the people that were on our tour. Uh, Peter there from Hong Kong and uh, Professor Ray Baki, who's up in the Northwest. They, they kind of reenacted this uh, baptism thing. Isn't the shape of that baptismal kind of interesting? I mean, why not just like a big, why not just like a big hot tub circle, like just, just a big thing or steps on all, all around it? Why this shape? Well, as odd as it might be, you know what that shape is supposed to represent? A womb. You got to kind of think back to eighth grade biology and go, okay, <laughs> tubes and, you know, okay, I get it. This is supposed to represent a womb. Why? Right? And, and, and there's three steps going down because the, you're entering into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there's three steps. And then there's this, you're baptized in this womb. Why? Because you're born again. It's new birth. It's new life. That's what it represents, a physical picture of a spiritual reality. How beautiful. All right. No more womb talk. Let's go to the next thing. Here's the second thing that baptism means is forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. This is what baptism proclaims, forgiveness of sins. That's the washing, that's the sprinkling 
But here's how it's described in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, uh, chapter 2, the uh, Christians have, Jesus has ascended. The Christians have been waiting. They've been praying. The Holy Spirit comes down and fills them. They begin to speak powerfully. Everyone's going, what in the world is going on? Peter gets up and preaches, and his message is basically, you killed Jesus, God raised him. And he just says that and preaches very powerfully. And it says in chapter, 30, uh, chapter 2, verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. I mean, think about it. We, we killed Jesus. We killed the Son of God. We killed the Messiah. We killed the one that God had sent. We didn't even see it. We didn't even know it. How did we do that? Right? They're cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? How do we get out of this? Here's Peter's answer. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter says, here's what you need to do. Repent. Tell God you're sorry. Apologize. Ask forgiveness. Agree with God that it was wrong for you to do that. The word repent means have a change of mind. Change your mind about your whole way of living and instead be baptized. What is that? Be baptized, the word literally means to be immersed. Be immersed in Christ. Be immersed in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. This is one of the things that baptism pictures. You know, there's a lot of different ways throughout church history that people have practiced baptism. Sometimes it's immersion, like what I described earlier, where you, you know, go under the water. Other times, though, the church has sometimes practiced sprinkling. Right, those of you from a Baptist tradition, you're like, come on, use more water. That's not enough. <laughs> just, but, but sprinkling, and the sprinkling represent that sprinkling, God sprinkling your heart, cleansing and forgiving your sin. And baptism, what a beautiful picture of forgiveness. I, I want to share a story with you that we uh, just got recently from one of our friends in Turkey, Ali. Uh, here's a picture of uh, Ali and Tim Campbell, and then Hakan and myself. And Ali is a pastor of uh, the church in Turkey that you all gave a part of Christmas offering to help them start a new congregation. Ali on the far left is the pastor of that congregation. Hakan there in the middle um, is kind of his right-hand man. And Hakan works for this uh, TV station where when people call in, Hakan follows up and he disciples them and he helps them grow in, in their faith. And uh, we actually support him all the time. And so every time you give a dollar to Redemption Gateway, part of it goes to help support Hakan's ministry and to help further what he's doing. And so this, uh, this is a story that Ali sent us just a couple weeks ago. This was so cool. I want to read it uh, with you. Uh, it's kind of in Ali's writing, and so um, just follow along if you want on the screen. But here's what he said. We baptized a special person today. His name is Erdem. Not his real name. A 53-year-old man from Adana. Adana is a little city in Turkey that's near Syria. It's in the south. He was a very strong Muslim, and for defending the Muslims, he volunteered in Bosnia in the war. He came back and joined an Islamic group in Turkey. He served there under a sheik for 14 years. His father was a wicked man, beating the mother, although she was old. One day when he was visiting his parents, his father attempted to beat the mother, and used bad words toward him. He lost himself and killed his father. He was put in the jail and sentenced 24 years. Later, his sentence was lowered 18 years, 
In 2014, he wrote to the churches and received a Bible and other books. He read the Bible four times, and one night in his cell, he received Jesus and gave his life to him in tears. He let authorities know about it and requested a pastor visit him. After that, he was beaten up for his faith many times. Later, with a new law, his sentence was lowered to 12 years, and his place was changed. Then he requested a pastor visit him again. This time, they told him that he can go out and get baptized in a church. He was given a seven-day release. Through Kanal Hayat, that's the TV ministry, and Hakan, that's the guy we support, he contacted us. Hakan helped him and talked to him on the phone many times. Through that relationship, he came to Istanbul to spend a few days with Hakan and us. We baptized him today. He shared his testimony. Many were crying, and he went back to Adana to the prison after spending a few more days with his family there. Praise the Lord. That's what God does. He takes Islamic radicals and he introduces them to Jesus. He takes convicted murderers and he cleanses and he forgives them. And I just keep being struck by the idea of, I don't even know how the legal system could work that you'd give a convicted murderer a seven-day release. I mean, I, this, is, this is not my culture. I don't understand this, but I don't think Ali is making it up. I mean, I know the guy, we trust him. And so what it, but, but, but you have seven days, what do you want to do? I want to get baptized. I want to get baptized. I want to go in the water. I want to demonstrate what has happened to me. I mean, what an amazing picture. That's what I want. More than a vacation, more than this, more than that. I want to get baptized. What a beautiful picture of forgiveness of sins. Here's a third thing that baptism signifies. It's in the same passage. It's receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. Receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, Jews knew, the Holy Spirit comes when the kingdom of God is at hand. When the new, uh, the new creation is instituted, that's when the Holy Spirit comes, right? This is part of the new covenant. I'm gonna put my spirit in you. And, and Peter says, listen, be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit. God himself. Not just coming to the earth in a body in the person of Jesus, but God himself coming into you through the Holy Spirit, filling you, strengthening you, giving you gifts that you can use to love him and to serve other people, helping convict you of sin and bringing you back into moments where you go, oh, I need to repent for that. I want to love the Lord more. Opening your eyes as you read the scriptures, encouraging you as you all of a sudden just have this new desire to love people that were previously unlovely to you. All of that comes with the Holy Spirit. It's evidence of God's work, and it's symbolized in baptism. In baptism, that's one of the things that it signified is the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is why another way that they practice baptism sometimes, besides immersion and besides sprinkling, is uh, pouring. 
Right? We've done this before when, uh, when we've had individuals who, you know, just for health or knee or whatever reasons, couldn't really get down into the thing. They've, they've stood there and we just kind of do the Gatorade thing on them, you know, like just, just pour it over their head. I mean, and it's just this, you see this cascading water and it's this beautiful picture of the Holy Spirit pouring out over them. Washing, cleansing, empowering, strengthening. What a great picture. Here's the fourth thing that we see that baptism means is entering a new community. Entering a new community. See, God isn't just forgiving and redeeming and pouring out his spirit on individuals. He is redeeming a people. He is creating a church, a community, a new family. Look at the words describing this family in Galatians chapter three. The apostle Paul writes this. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. This means you're in the same family. You're sons of God. If God's your father, then you're brothers and sisters. You're sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. Here's what he's saying. He's saying when you get baptized, your fundamental identity changes. Before you said, this is my ethnicity. This is my gender. This is my class. This is my job. This is my background. This is my past. But when you get baptized, what does it say? You've put on Christ. Christ is your new identity. Christ is your new family name. You've entered into a new community. This is why it's only the church who practices baptisms. You don't do baptisms at Young Life. You don't do baptisms at Fellowship of Christian Athletes or at InterVarsity or at all those other very excellent ministries that come alongside the church. It, it really only happens in the church. When I was baptized, I was a junior in college. I had become a Christian my junior year in high school, so it had been about four years. And really, no one ever kind of told me, hey, after you become a Christian, you should get baptized. I had been around church enough, I guess I should have just noticed or picked it up, or, but I, I just didn't. And I don't know exactly what happened, but I was reading the Bible at one point and went, I've never been baptized. I mean, I, I, wait, I'd been baptized when I was a baby, uh, like, I don't know, a couple months old, had my hand in the pastor's mouth from what they tell me. I don't remember. I mean, I was there, but I realized I've, I've not been baptized as a Christian, right? And that's what you see in the New Testament is every time a person gets baptized, they're baptized after becoming a Christian. I went, I've never done this. I should, I should get baptized. And I talked with my uh, now wife, Molly, and said, hey, have you been baptized? She said, no. I said, we should get baptized. And I talked to my roommate, Evan, and I said, have you been baptized? He said, not since I was a little baby. He's like, okay, let's get baptized. So the three of us went to our, our, our pastor we went to this little small community evangelical free church, 100 or so people, and said, hey, we'd really like to get baptized. And our, our church met in the gym of a, of a school, and so we didn't have a baptismal. And we said, okay. And so this church went out of their way to arrange a baptism at another local church's building. We used their baptistry. It was kind of one of these puppet show things, you know, where there's like, you look through the window. And, and I was amazed. I'll bet probably 40 people from our church came most of whom I didn't know their names. On a Saturday morning, why? Why would all those people come? Why would all those people be there? People I didn't really even know. 
Because what they knew was, when you get baptized, you're entering the family. You're my brother. You're my sister. I want to be there. I want to celebrate. I want to rejoice. This is a big moment, not just in your life, but in the life of our church. Baptisms means entering a new community. Here's the last thing that baptism signifies. The last thing is belonging to Christ. Belonging to Christ. And this is such a beautiful imagery. This is actually the passage that uh, the pastor uh, spoke about at our baptism that uh, Saturday morning. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This passage is saying what baptism signifies is that you belong to Christ. You're united to Christ. You can't be separated from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus because you're united to him by faith. And baptism pictures that union. You go down in the water just like Jesus went down into the grave. And it's his death that pays for your sins, not yours. But you go down to represent that that has been applied to you. And you come up out of the water. And it's his resurrection that is your victory. And yet you come up signifying Jesus' resurrection is for me. It symbolizes how you belong to Christ. This is why baptism on Easter is just such a perfect picture. Right? So someone, someone emailed me the other day said, you know, I, I appreciate that you know, God saves people or whatever, but I would rather we didn't do baptisms on Easter because on Easter, I want to focus on the risen Christ. And I, and I wrote back, I said, listen, here's why we celebrate baptisms on Easter. Because baptisms, we're baptizing people who are saying, my life has hope and meaning and purpose because of the resurrection of Jesus. They testify to that hope that they have. And then they reenact the resurrection of Jesus by going down in the water and up out of it. There could not be a better way to focus on the risen Christ than by baptizing the people he saved through his resurrection. Amen? And that's why we do that. And that's why it's a huge party. And that's why it's a tremendous celebration. So let's wrap this up. I want to talk to a few groups of people. First, let's talk to those of you who have already been baptized as a Christian, right? And again, I'm not talking about when you were a baby and you don't remember it and none of these things meant anything to you, right? Have you been baptized as a Christian? If you've been baptized as a Christian, here's what I think this message says to you. This message says, here is your true identity. Here's who you are in Christ. When you're discouraged, when you're frustrated, when you're stuck in sin, when you feel like you're just not moving anywhere, you're not going anywhere, this is who you are. This is what you remind yourself of, right? It, just think of these five statements based on those five things we just looked at. You could say to yourself, you could say this every day, I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm not defined by my past. I'm not defined by who I was. I'm a new creation in Christ. My sins are completely forgiven. I can't pay for them. I can't work them over. They've already been paid for. My sins are completely forgiven. God's spirit lives in me. I don't have to sin. I don't have to be discouraged. God himself is with me. I'm part of God's family. I might feel alone. I might feel abandoned, but I'm not. I'm part of the family of God. And I've died to sin and been raised with Jesus. 
I am united to Christ. He is not going to let me go. Christian, think about this. If you thought about that every day, what might it do to your faith? What might it do to your capacity to trust God? What might it do for your ability to love other people? What might it do to minimize the things you're currently afraid and freaked out about? Look to your baptism. Not to the, just the moment of it, but, but what that all preaches, what all that proclaims. Look back to that moment and fuel your faith, okay? Now, there's those of you who haven't been baptized and the question would be, okay, well, well what should you do? So first, I want to just uh, take children out of the equation, okay? One of the things that we've talked a lot about as a leadership here at Redemption Gateway is that we don't think it's helpful for kids to even be considering baptism until their teenage years and ideally even older. And uh, we have a whole class this Thursday that you're welcome to come to called Wisdom for Parents on Baptism and Communion, where we unpack why we think that is. If you go to this website, just our website, and then at the end put slash baptism, uh, you can get our packet that explains this and, and fleshes it out. But essentially, it, here's what it is. We think baptism is a big enough deal that we, we only want you to do it once. And we know a lot of people who've said, well, when I was six or when I was seven, I made a decision and I don't really even remember it very well, but now I'm gonna be baptized again because I don't remember that baptism. And we wanna say, hey, this is a big enough thing. You can trust Christ. You don't have to wait till you're a teenager to be a Christian. But, but by the time that you're in your teenage years, you're starting to say, here's who I really am. Here's who my identity is. This is not just a here today, gone tomorrow. This is not just based on the, what all the people around me expect me to do. Here's, here's what I wanna do. I wanna follow Jesus. And so we encourage families with kids to, to just hold off. Don't even worry about the conversation until they get to an old enough age that they can really embrace it themselves. So I don't have time to talk more about that, but kids, for now, just breathe a sigh of relief. You don't need to think about it yet, but you should think about it later. But what about adults? Should you be baptized? Well, here's the question. Peter said, what should we do? Repent and be baptized. Okay, so the question is, have you repented? Have you turned from your sin? Have you trusted in Christ? Have you embraced him to give you new life and forgive your sin and give you his Holy Spirit and bring you into a new community and to have you belong to him? Have you done that? If you haven't, then no, you shouldn't get baptized. That's what it is to be a Christian. And in a few moments when we take communion, you shouldn't take communion. And that's not to be punitive. It's just to say, I think you get it by now. These things mean something. And what they mean is I am with Jesus. He is my hope. I don't have any encouragement or hope that I can know or relate to God without Jesus. And if you're not at that point, then don't be baptized and don't yet celebrate communion. We hope that God will work. We hope that your heart will be open to him. But for now, this isn't a step you should take. But... If you're a Christian, you say, I, I've repented. I have trusted the Lord. All those five things, those are true of me. God's done this amazing work in my life. And you've never been baptized as a Christian since you became a Christian? You should do it. I, I hope by now, I, I haven't even talked about how the Bible commands that you should do it. I hope by now you just go, I want to. But here's what I also know, because I've talked to enough of you who have said, like usually kind of in a quiet voice, hey Luke, uh, 
I've been a Christian for like 30 years, but I've never been baptized. And I would, but it's kind of embarrassing now. I get it. That would be embarrassing. And I don't, I just, if I was in your shoes, I'd probably feel the same way. I actually know a pastor, uh, not a pastor anymore, but he was a pastor. And at the time he said, I, you know, can I tell you a secret? I said, sure. He said, I've never been baptized. I said, you need to be baptized. He said, I know, but it's just so embarrassing. I'd have to admit to the church that I never have, and I, I'm just ashamed of it. And he never did. And I'm not saying this is why, but it was interesting to me that within a couple of years, this church died. And again, I'm not saying it's causal, you know, A led to B. But it's interesting to me that the pastor had a, this sense of, I can't admit that I did wrong. I have to pretend to be something I'm not. So that's you, you're embarrassed, you're ashamed, get over yourself. That's pride. It's stupid. Get baptized. On your connection card, there's a place where you can ask for, you know, I, I want to I get in this. We, it, that'd be great to do. You should be baptized if you're a Christian and you haven't yet done it. All right? I'm over my time, so I'm going to pray, and Josh will lead us through another beautiful picture that proclaims the gospel communion. So let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you nourish us through it. Thank you for the good news of the gospel and all the beautiful hope that it speaks to us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.